0: Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the game changers, you are in the right place, I promise you. Today's buzz, leaders and the bottom line. What do they have to do with each other? Okay, according to research from SAP and knowledge at Wharton, listen up, this is important. 51% of leaders today believe that simplification is of strategic importance. Yet, and it's a big yet, only 17% of them feel that their efforts have been successful. That's not a good number. Why does it matter? Because it can significantly impact the bottom line. By how much? study at BCG 2010 says effectively managing complexity can result in at least a 25% increase in profit margins. I don't know anybody that I know who wouldn't want to have that kind of increase in profit margins, and I'm sure you don't either, so it's something we want to gear toward. Leaders now need to step up. They need to learn or enhance their skills around organizational design, analytics, and so much more. We've got a panel of experts today to help us figure out What actually do leaders need to do to master this thing called simplification? Are they ready? Are they close? And how much effort is it going to take to achieve this? First up on the panel, I'm pleased to welcome Eric Lesser at IBM. And Eric sent me a very interesting quote from Benjamin Franklin. Here it is. Either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. That's an interesting one, especially for broadcasters and journalists. Eric Lesser, how are you today?
2: I'm doing just fine. Thanks for having me on the show today.
1: Delighted to have you. Talk to me about this quote. How did how Ben Franklin get on our show today? That's how did the interesting ben, well, question. One thing
2: that Ben Franklin understood, I think, was the value of time. And this is something that everybody can relate to in terms of being pressed for time. Uh, just simply, there's more to digest. There's more that needs to be compressed. And everybody in the world is is fighting for that most limited resource, which is time. And so when I got to thinking about the quote, it was this idea of either write something worth reading, that there's just so much information out there, uh, everything from stuff that's really valuable to stuff that is, you know, truly inane. So the question that, or the idea that I came up with particularly is the the group that I lead in, in IBM, is this idea of making it meaningful, making it valuable for people. Um, If you're going to write something, if you're going to tell someone something, make it something that's going to be relevant to their day-to-day existence, that's going to be easy for them to digest and to understand. And then the second part of the quote, this idea of do something worth writing, um, that there are lots of interesting stories that are out there. There are lots of uh, practices that people want to hear about. So it's about finding out those true nuggets that are out there and getting it in the hands of business people so they can actually do something with it and be able to digest it.
1: Very interesting. Okay, thank you. Good start to our topic, Eric, and welcome again. Let's bring on our second guest. It's Josh Burson, Burson by Deloitte. And Josh hasn't been on the show in at least three years, so I'm delighted Mm -hmm. to welcome you back. And Josh sent me the following quote. Culture is the new black in today's data-driven work environment. Anything we can do to understand and improve our workplace culture results in higher performance and greater customer success. Welcome, Josh Burson. How are you today?
3: Great, Bonnie. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us. So talk to me about this quote.
3: Well, you know, relative to simplification and culture, they're very related. Um, But the topic of culture is really, really hot right now because we have a retention crisis, basically, in business. And we just finished this massive piece of research, and it basically shows that retention and engagement is the number one problem um, business and HR leaders are worried about. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, which we can talk, you know, during our our hour. But one of the reasons is that work itself is a little bit overwhelming for people. And many companies, particularly big companies, haven't done a very good job of eliminating the noise, the clutter, the massive number of emails, the conference calls, um, you know, that, that we are all flooded with. Plus, we now have them at home when we stand in line at Starbucks. In the evening, mm-hmm. I think 30 or 40% of young people wake up in the middle of the night and check their phones. So all that stuff that many of which comes from our, you know, employers, sometimes not, in, you know, direct, not, in, not deliberately is creating complexity and reducing engagement and productivity. So I think simplification is a business problem. Now in the per, in our personal lives, we think about mindfulness and yoga and All these books on how to focus and how to get more sleep, some of which seem to work, some of which I don't know if they're ever going to work, you know, because some of this is just psychology. But on business, we've got to just make, make the work environment simpler. And maybe in the next section I can talk a little bit more about what we've been seeing and some trends there. Because I think it's really an important discipline for everybody in business at all levels to really think hard about
1: Thank you, Josh. You're talking about such a pervasive issue of our always-on culture. You said it. Uh, first thing we do, some t- some of us in the middle of the night, we roll over, we grab for the mm-hmm. cell phone or the iPad, and we're checking. And it's it's the mindset, Josh. I think of did I miss something? Does somebody need me? Do you think it's yeah. it's a, a culture of of I'll say this terribly of um, let's say pseudo ego, where everybody wants to feel they're so important and so <laughs> valuable that hey, the world can't function if I'm I'm having Eight hours of sleep. The world can't function without me. I have to check in because somebody needs me. What do you think?
3: Well, you know, it's, the kids call it FOMO, fear, fear of missing out, and I think <laughs> it, it, you know that, that's a teenager term, but it's it's absolutely a human nature um, for for people. I think it's a general human trend is that if there's something going on that I either need to be involved in, should be involved in, or maybe you know will be will be hurt by not being involved in, then I'm going to pay attention. And it turns out there's actually some interesting neurological research that shows that fear of being abandoned or fear of being excluded is one of the deepest fears we have psychologically. So there actually is a psychological reason why we do this, because we're afraid of being left out of something. So what I think companies have to do, and I spend most of my time with HR, is they have to create an environment which reduces that risk and makes people feel comfortable focusing on what they need to do and not being involved in many of the things they don't need to do. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's one of the principles of simplification is giving people tools and freedom to focus and, and being very okay with them saying, no, I'm not coming to that meeting. I don't have time. I'm not going to join that conference call. Um, I have something else more important to do and people being comfortable with that. And that's a cultural thing that some companies are starting to do more and more of now.
1: Josh it reminds me of back in the day we, before we were such a digitized digital culture when meetings face to face everything was was key that you be involved and I don't I'm sure you remember you're probably uh, somewhat near my generation when mm-hmm. if you weren't invited to a meeting you would lurk in the shadows and say are they letting me go am i no <laughs> longer needed is right. my manager replace am i right it right. was it was almost be included or die and go home scared remember those days
3: right, right. You should consider yourself lucky if you're not invited to a meeting. You know, it gives you time to do something else. Um, But that's not the way culture works and the way human nature works sometimes.
1: Well, it sounds like there's a lot of changing that needs to be done in the name of simplification and putting people's egos to rest, not to sleep, but just to calm us Mm -hmm. down. Thank you, Josh. Good conversation. Carrie Brown, how are you? Carrie's our third panelist. She's back again. We love having Carrie on the show. And she sent me a very interesting quote. It's an old mantra. We've all probably heard it from our parents and our grandparents. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And Carrie sent me three attributions, Sir Robert Bruce and... William Edward Hickson, and Thomas H. Palmer. Would the real owner of this quote please stand up? Carrie Brown, how
4: are you? I'm well, thank you, Bonnie. Thank you for having me again.
1: Delighted. Talk to me about this quote.
4: So it was interesting, and I know you always check my quotes to make sure that they're accurate, so I checked my own quote this time. And that's how I found out it had so many attributes. And, in fact, the, the source that I know it from is Sir Robert Bruce. My parents are British and as a child we would travel to england to visit relatives and i remember sitting in a little tiny pub somewhere in uh the the southwest of england and on the wall it said this is where sir robert bruce came up with his quote if at first you don't succeed try try again and if you google it and uh uh, gts is another teenage uh thing it's google that stuff probably a different term at the end if you google it you find that The legend is true to what I got told, which is he came up with it as he watched a spider try to weave his web. And he'd watch him go back and forth and back and forth. He missed, he'd continue to try and try again. And so when I was thinking today about simplification and about leadership, really a combination of two things when I look at that story. One is the tenacity it takes, and if it doesn't work, just try again. And we, we all keep trying to find a different answer to how to do something that really is as complex as a spider web. And how do we make it a bit more simple? And it was interesting to see that idea is is clearly you know, resonating enough with enough people that there's more than one person who thinks they came up with this thought. So I don't think it's the last time we're going to be considering how can we try it this again.
1: Carrie, I have one more attribution I think you're going to love. It's on Brainy Quote. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Here's the rest of it. Then quit. There's no point in being a damn fool about it. <laughs> Any clue who said that? I have it right here. Anybody want to guess who said that one? Somebody from show business. Somebody very big and bold and over the top and bigger than life and from many, many years ago. Anybody? It was the it, – it, The quintessential showman, W.C. Fields. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, then quit. There's no point in being a damn fool about it. Thank you very much, Carrie. Guess what? It's time for me to circle back to Eric Lesser at IBM. And, Eric, I'm going to ask you a very important question. What are you drinking right now? What's in your cup today? Or, if nothing interesting, tell me what you're planning to drink after the show.
2: Eric? Okay. Well, I've got a cup of peppermint tea here. But what's most interesting is actually the cup in which is holding it. Um, the cup is actually from one of the first times that I was on a radio show. It was actually a radio show that I was running. Um, in the UK, there used to be something called hospital radio that used to entertain the patients and staff um, in the days of prior to, uh, you know, sort of deregulation of radio in the UK. So I'm holding a mug here from approximately 25 years ago from Middlesex Hospital Radio where I ran a morning show and uh, entertained uh, the various patients there. Uh, Unfortunately, both the radio station and the hospital itself are now closed, but I still do have the mug to remind me of uh, some of my initial on-air experience.
1: Well, how, what a wonderful thing for you to do. Eric, how did you keep them entertained? Did you tell jokes? I hope not medical jokes. How oh, did not you, medical,
2: did you, oh, a combination of uh, top 40 radio and various uh, Americanisms, since I was the only American on the entire station. Wow. And, uh, hopefully found, people found my uh, uh, language differences and stories to be quite entertaining.
1: Well, bravo. We got to know something special about you. Thank you, Eric. I told you we'd enjoy that story. Thank you very much. And Josh Burson, what are you drinking?
3: <laughs> well, mine's a little bit less interesting. Um, you know, I'm a coffee drinker, so for years and years I've been getting going to Pete's Coffee in the Bay Area and getting some you know, really strong coffee and making it at home. And then I would get up and make a cup of coffee, and then I'd be ready to go. And then the rest of the afternoon the coffee would sit there while I went to work. So uh-huh. I, my son decided, came up with this idea. Why don't you just stick it in the fruit refrigerator and drink it cold? And wow, what a difference. I don't even have to make coffee anymore. I have cold iced coffee every morning. So I'm sitting here with a tall glass of iced coffee standing in front of me. That's probably the best jolt of energy that, <laughs> that I could have wow. possibly invented. So that's, that's my little drinking story this morning.
1: Josh, I want to know, what, what coffee did you start out with that you brewed that is such good iced coffee? Is there a flavor? Is there Sumatra. a brand? We... The,
3: Sum, the Sumatra uh. brand blend from Pete's, and I don't want to be promotional because Deloitte doesn't like that, but that's the local one that I like, and uh, I kind of got addicted to it. And then you got to get it ground to the right grind, so I use the three, which is the sort of dust, slightly dusty grind, <laughs> and it's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: that's funny. Speaking of dusty, we had a... a guest from the uk on recently and we were talking about drinks and the topic came up of how do you brew your tea this is always Mm -hmm. a point of great contention as you can imagine we've actually had a guest who told us what temperature and how thick the china cup had to be and and the comment was made that you americans use tea bags that's just dusty tea that's not real tea (laughs) that's dust so
2: (laughs) definitely a touch of sacrilegious nature in there
1: There you go. Carrie Brown, I can't wait to hear what you're drinking today.
4: I'm back there with Eric in the tea category. I think coffee smells fantastic, but it's a big letdown to taste. So I am having some ginger tea and enjoying it tremendously. Very,
1: very nice. And I'm just down to water. Carrie knows from being on the show so often they don't let Bonnie have caffeine on radio show days. Guess what? We have quite the panel today. We're talking about simplifying your business. Are your leaders equipped? And as you can tell from our opening conversation, we have covered a lot of territory already. We've got a lot more to cover. I'm speaking with Eric Lesser at IBM, Josh Burson at Burson by Deloitte, Carrie Brown at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. And in case you're wondering, you're listening to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers Radio. This is one of our newer series, and this is episode number five. Our sponsors are Becky Weber, and Lindsay Nelson at SAP. And we're live here today is Tuesday, April 7th. Where does the time go? My goodness gracious. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Eric Lesser is going to do the honors of opening up our roundtable. And I've already picked out some interesting comments from the notes he sent me before the show. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Bread out. <laughs>
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We are witnessing a monumental shift in the way work and business are done. Leaders are looking to radically simplify their organizations while simultaneously engaging and empowering employees to achieve more. These leaders are also seeking to leverage exciting innovations born from interactions between people, businesses, and things in our newly responsive and intelligent, hyper-connected, networked global economy. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how leaders and their teams can help shape the future of change. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at SAP.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers.
1: Are. and our esteemed panelists today are Eric Lesser at IBM, Josh Burson at Burson by Deloitte, and Carrie Brown at SAP. If you want to tweet, we welcome you at hashtag SAP Radio. That's our favorite hashtag, and we'd love to see what you have to say. Questions for the panel, I will answer them. I'll ask the panelists to answer them. I see Deloitte SAP is tweeting about Josh Burson being on the show, so whoever Deloitte SAP, whoever's mm-hmm. manning or womaning that, I'd love to see you tweet more. We want to hear more comments, as The conversation progresses. We're ready for our roundtable. This is going to be approximately 30 minutes nonstop, so my panelists have a lot of work to do. Let's kick it off with Eric Lesser. You sent me a very compelling statement, Eric, you say simplicity, which is our topic, while significantly desired by many executives, continues to confound many companies. So you, you've juxtaposed executives and companies. That's interesting to me. Uh, I'm thinking more along the lines of what Josh talked about, culture. So why don't we dissect this? Eric, why don't you expand it for us, please?
2: Sure. I mean, one of the things that we see is that just the sheer amount of information that That companies and individuals are expected to handle and process and make decisions from, you know, just continues to increase exponentially. And it's not just data from transactions. It's about uh, mobile interactions, locational data, social data, all what we call this idea of systems of engagement and when you have all of this data coming at you from all different sources in all different places what happens is, is that people get stuck um... they don't know exactly where to start you know if you look at some of the research that was done all the way back in the world of financial planning that shows that the more choices you offer people in a 401k the less likely they're actually going to make any active decisions from it mm-hmm. so while companies are taking steps to reduce you know the amount of steps and processes or you know how to get access on information They need to think about how do I take all of this input that's you know bombarding us on a on a daily basis, and to put some structure and to be able to make some sense from it. Uh, Another challenge that we're seeing with uh, regard to simplicity at an organizational level is this notion of companies participating in ecosystems. I think companies are recognizing that when they want to deliver a product to or a service to a customer, they can't do everything by themselves. They've got to bring in other companies that have specific expertise and specific understanding. And so it's not just about what's going on within your four walls, but it's the coordination of a whole mass of different companies, some big, some small, some local, some international, and being able to coordinate all and orchestrate all of these different players makes simplicity more challenging at times. Mm-hmm. And, and we've seen lots of examples of companies trying to do all sorts of things to simplify. I mean, this goes back all the way to the, you know, if we go back to the late 90s with the whole process improvement move, movement and trying to reduce the amount of steps that it takes uh, to get something done. Um, but we also saw the growth of employee and managerial self-service uh, so that you know, taking information and putting it in the hands of people when they wanted to use it and how they wanted to use it. But what happens is, is that when you try to give people access to that information in one domain, let's say it's within um, you know getting their HR information, and then you have to put, add self-service onto how they uh, go out and procure things and how they need help for the computer, and you start adding these various layers and layers on, you, you end up creating a new sense of complexity for organ for in. Individuals within organizations. So I think this idea of the flood of information, the need to coordinate uh, across organizational boundaries, and this sort of movement of work uh, towards the employee, giving the employee more responsibility, all of those things put together makes it difficult for people sometimes to sort of just make sense of the world and be able to get things done what they need to get done.
1: Eric, do you think this uh, matters for small companies? Uh, Hopefully they're lean and mean and they are streamlined and they start out well and they don't get into a a jumble of spaghetti where everything has to be expanded, as you said, with the ecosystem and bringing on all kinds of uh, data that people need. Uh, Is this something that's endemic to large companies today, midsize along the SMB spectrum? Where are you seeing this?
2: Well, I think, you know, typically you see a lot of this in larger organizations. I think, um, you know, smaller organizations have the, uh, the the benefit, if you will, of, uh, first of all, not having a lot of the legacy uh, applications or the legacy processes behind them that they have to go out and change. Uh, in large organizations, oftentimes it's been cobbled together through multiple acquisitions and multiple instances so that you are trying to move, you know, you're trying to, if you will, uh, move uh, things that have already been established and trying to, to bring them down to a simpler level. I think smaller organizations do have that you know, advantage in some extent. But what happens is, is that as smaller companies want to be able to connect and be part of these larger ecosystems, they need to understand how these larger organizations are working and need to be adapted to some of those capabilities.
1: Thank you. I, I have one comment before I invite Josh Burson to join us on this. Uh, back in the day, I think this was called the job of the efficiency expert. Do you remember mm-hmm. those days? Somebody yeah. who you brought in to try and, and unplug right. and, and simplify and streamline and say, "Well, you really don't need twenty-five ways to do this. You could do it with two. Josh Burson, talk to us. What are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, it's funny. I, I it is. I remember that too. Well, mm-hmm. let me <laughs> sort of break this problem down into two parts. So the first is the role of leaders, and I think you know I've I've been in business about thirty years or so, and I've been in lots of different kinds of companies, small, medium, large. And if we want to make life simpler, the leaders have to f- help people focus. It's up to the leaders to say, to not get, let's not give us 15 goals. Don't send a new email every day that has another idea in it. Um, help us decide what the most important priorities are so that all of us feel free to not do the things that are not important. And some leaders are very good at that, and those are inspirational leaders, and people follow them. But sometimes leaders who are subject matter experts, who are engineers, who are scientists, who you know, who graduate into leadership through their technical expertise, are not very good at that, and and they learn maybe you know many late years later in their leadership career how important it is to get people to focus, because that gives people clarity about how to prioritize their time. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it, if you get down into the grassroots of what we do as HR professionals, sales professionals, or whatever, we have to practice what I like to think of as design thinking. Now, I spend a lot of my time with HR people around the world, and, and I love the HR profession, and it generally doesn't get you know maybe as much credit as it deserves. But one of the things HR people like to do is design things. We like to design onboarding programs, training programs, recruiting programs, marketing programs, uh, you know communications programs, whatever, and we sit down and we design these things, and maybe we 'll build a competency model, and then we 'll have all sorts of steps and pretty soon it 's gotten really complicated, and we 've kind of lost track of what it 's going to be like for this poor person to take it, but we 're caught up in the elegance of the program itself mm-hmm. we can 't do that anymore people don 't have time; <laughs> we have to learn how to take you know the seven-step program and make it the three-step program one of the best examples of this <clears throat> that's a crusade that's going through business today is simplifying performance management we have these we have companies i'm talking to companies now that are spending millions of hours every year on their, or their on their end of year appraisal process just because there's a traditional hr practice that involves filling out a lot of forms and doing a lot of things and going to a lot of meetings a lot of which we don't we don't really need to do to make the company work well, and so we those of us that are in functional roles, we have to really be vigilant about designing things that are simple, and that's not easy to do. Um, being simple is not being simplistic; it's reducing the things that are not necessary, it's reducing clutter and so I think there's a role for leaders to give us guidance and direction, and then there's another role for those of us that are, you know, sort of more of the doers to, you know, really work hard not to make life complex. Um, And, you know, I think this is a big thing. You know, I'll say one more thing, and then we can, you know, move on to the next topic or next person, but, you know, if you look at software, I'll give you an example. The most Mm -hmm. valuable, you know, companies now, software products in the market are products that do only one thing, you look at Snapchat, you look at Twitter, you look at um, all these tools that people are one about that become billion-dollar companies so fast, it's because they're so simple to use that people use them a lot. And there's a message there. They don't have hundreds of features and hundreds of options because people don't have time to even figure out what they are. So this this is a discipline that that we're, that's going, going through products, through business, through the way HR works, um, virtually everything that happens. And... Uh, I think it's a really important new discipline within business that we all have to learn more about.
1: Thank you, Josh. Great points. Carrie Brown, sure. join
4: us. Thoughts? Oh, it's so nice to listen to these gentlemen. I love their segue for, for our thinking as we spoke. First off, when I was listening to Eric and your question of is it large organizations, I think to some degree, yes, it is large organizations that suffer from lack of simplicity because smaller organizations have the freedom to design freely and to design with a clean slate. And I was reminded yesterday, I was at the D School, the design school at Stanford with Damian, our chief design officer, mm-hmm. and he shared the story of how the school got built where Hasso Plattner read an article about design thinking, so th- thank you, Josh, as he moved into that, uh-huh. it reminded him of what it was like when he started the organization with four people and the freedom with which they could design and organization and how over time... We have, as a rigorous German company, become more complex versus simple, and needed to address that. And so, it really becomes an unraveling of that web of of layers of content that makes sense at the time, but over time become sort of unwieldy. And I think what's interesting now is we have an opportunity. If you look at the influencers to culture that are happening, the demographic shift, the focus on talent, is how do we look at the the fresh air or the freedoms that may come with having a different population walk in who has a different viewpoint on the workforce and on the way we work. And so some of what we all have, people are protecting those layers that they built that they're so proud of. And we have an opportunity now, both from a technological perspective, to run our businesses differently because technology continues to accelerate and provide magnified different opportunities. But then it's how to make the right choices. And I, I like your comment on, on apps, but we spoke yesterday at a meeting, and one of the things we talked about, I got asked as we prepping for Sapphire on simplicity. And the analogy I used was think of those apps. So those apps that you mentioned that each of us have that we like. Think of if one family had to all use the same apps. And then think of if one neighborhood had to all use the same apps. And then one city and so on. And you think of the size of enterprise and the challenges. How do we provide that elegant solution with beautiful design, with beautiful functionality that is suitable to such a large population? And that's, I think, the interesting tug of war from the influence of technology on how do we provide simplicity where all of us are wanting to see that ease of use, that ease of work, yet with entirely uh, broad ranging populations in the workforce. Thank you, You Terry.
3: Can I make one comment? You know, one of the things I think we all have to learn, for those of us that are inside companies, is we have to measure the success of whatever we do by adoption. So if we do something and nobody uses it, telling them to use it, making them use it, forcing them to use it's not the answer. The answer is, make it so easy, they want to use it. Mm
4: -hmm. That's the way the Internet works now. (laughs) I I actually, there's there's an equation that I... I've been socializing inside and outside SAP for the last year, and it was UX, so user experience, equals UI, the, the user interface, plus user adoption. And my reason for doing that is a beautiful UI does not equal a beautiful experience. It's absolutely adoption and how people do their jobs is what demonstrates that they can simply and elegantly and efficiently get their work done. Yeah great points. Eric Lesser, you, we started
1: this thread with you. You want to chime in on uh, all the great points that Josh and Carrie just added?
2: Yes, yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I think with this whole idea of adoption, one of the the areas where I think it's become very interesting is this whole idea of visualization. How do you make it easy? Because the, the amount of things that people have to do and the amount of data that they have to process, that's not going away. That's going to continue to increase. So one of the things that we've seen in some of our research is the importance of visualization. How do you make it easier or digestible to take all of this stream of information and find new and interesting ways of displaying it that's going to catch people's attention? Uh, We just did a study on the whole world of workforce analytics, and one of the things we were actually surprised to see was for people who didn't grow up in a world where they were dealing with statistics on a regular basis, was the importance of how do I display this new information, how do I display these new insights in ways that's easy for people to understand and digest. So I think there's a whole, you know, the whole world of, you know, graphical design is going to continue to think of new and interesting ways of helping people you know, sort of swallow and understand this. You know, shift in all of the data that's coming at them on an ongoing basis.
1: Thank you, Eric, so it's, Josh, it's, or Kerry? Know, one, Go one, ahead.
3: I was going to say one of the things I think we got to that makes it's. I, I think the problem is not. You know, usually you don't get the design right, and and I'm not a design guru, but I've done some of it. It's iterative. So so you like you design something, you think it's easy to use, you show it to people you find out they don't click on this button ever. They've never clicked on it. Okay, so let's get rid of it. You know, we have to kind of use that approach as opposed to, you know, when I studied engineering, I studied engineering in college. I studied mechanical engineering, and they have this concept in physics called entropy, which is, you know, like everything gets more complicated all the time. And so the opposite approach is, well, they didn't click on this button. Let's add that button. Let's make this one red. Let's make this one white. And, And that's, as Eric was saying, this idea of, Visualization and simplicity, it's, it takes time. And, you know, I, th- I think, right, I mean, I'm not a graphic designer, but I really think we have to be very, become very focused on it. Um, so.
2: And, and it's interesting you know. <laughs> how more and more we're starting to see probably in the last couple of years, you know, from a, a labor market standpoint, all of a sudden, you know, sort of new jobs and new, desi- you know, for right. designers um, and graphic artist specialists that we've never seen before in companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you think of the growth of digital agencies that are out there, all of a sudden, a lot of these type of uh, skills, um, all of a sudden, there's a new market for people who are coming out with these kinds of capabilities. Have mm-hmm. you seen that, Josh, in some of your yeah,
3: work? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, we, we, had to, we had graphic designers and people that worked for us. and. And they became user now. I think they're called user experience designers. UX. I don't <laughs> yes. know. They
2: keep changing the name, but it's definitely it, hot. It, it's, <laughs> it's funny. It's almost like there've been parallels almost with the world of data scientists. You know, we talked about in, in the past data scientists being in a in a back room that they only let out for you know fresh air once in a while. And now data scientists obviously become a very prominent. Uh, position in many organizations. And so you sort of see with the the increase in the amount of data and the ability and the need to be able to digest that data to take action on it, you see the growth of importance in both the the data scientist roles, but also in this graphic and this user experience roles. Right.
1: Guess what? I'm going to move in a slightly different direction here. I'm looking at Josh Burson's notes before the show. And, Josh, you have an interesting point here. We haven't brought up the M word yet. I was listening carefully and I didn't hear it, so let me read this. I call it the M word. Organizations today are catching up to the new world of work, often being reinvented by millennials and you Mm -hmm. add it's time to reinvent the workplace and now organizations function with a focus on transparency simplicity sound leadership and continuous growth that's a lot those four Mm -hmm. elements are a lot so are millennials driving this are they demanding it are they designing it what's their role are they inspiring it josh
3: well millennials are the largest group in the workforce now so they are the workforce um, you know, I, I don't think we need to talk about them as them anymore. Um, and uh, they grew up, you know, over the last 15 years with Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, mobile phones, you know, Snapchat, whatever it was. So they believe, they expect to be able to communicate rapidly. They expect to be able to get feedback. Um, they They say 80% of millennials want to give their bosses performance appraisals. Um, they, um want to be creative. 70 some odd percent want to have jobs where they get to create things at work, which is great, you know. I mean, everybody wants to do that. So they, they've kind of grown up in this, and, and they expect information at their fingertips. If they want to learn something, they expect people to go online and find a video of somebody that teaches them how to do it. So they've put a lot of pressures and expectations on big corporations that, you know, people maybe my age never, we had different expectations, but, Um, So they are pushing things. And, you know, companies, particularly in the Silicon Valley or in tech industries, are finding that um, people will leave a company that doesn't have a work environment that has these aspects of culture and transparency and open communication, and they'll try to find one. And they really relate to their team, not just the brand. So, you know, you may want to work for a certain company because that has a great brand, but if you go to work there and then the job isn't that great, and these other attributes are not there, you can go into LinkedIn or Indeed or Glassdoor and find another job pretty fast. You know, it, it used to be very, very hard to go look for work. Now it's really not. So it's much, much more job mobility. So I think they've they've really um, upped the game on this issue of engagement and culture, and that's the reason it scored so high in this survey, is, is I think the expectations of work and the work environment are different. And... And they're they're not you know they're not they're not weird they're just you know they're just a little bit different <laughs> mm-hmm. because of the way young
2: people have grown up. Uh, this is Eric. I, I think yeah. from from some research that we've done on millennials, what we found is is that millennials have certainly brought a lot of these ideas into the workplace. But what we're also seeing is is that the Gen X and the baby boomers are catching up with this stuff pretty quickly as well. Um, you know, when we look at the ideas and, and some of the ways that millennials feel about work and how they uh, interact with others in the workplace, what we find is is that actually there are, uh, the, the Gen X people are, are operating much in the same or similar ways. Uh, baby boomers also in many situations. So that when it comes to things about, you know, adoption of new technology, um, the need to find uh, meaning at work, the reasons that people are staying or leaving jobs, many of those trends are very similar now across millennials and, you know, their their older peers. Now, part of that is because, again, millennials, as Josh said, have been now in the workforce for a while, have brought these ideas. But I think a lot of these ideas have spread very, very rapidly so that it's not just about different generations in the workforce. It's about the workforce itself.
4: This is Kerry. yeah carrying the same thing, but there's definitely... Is almost a myth that millennials are that different anymore. It's really all about all of us. And I think what's interesting is we've had a, a luxury, if you will, or a situation of so many years of a fairly static workforce. We've had a large population who's been in the workforce and perhaps they've changed from company to company, but they've changed with fairly similar skill sets and fairly similar patterns of work. And with the bigger shift and the technology magnification in the workforce it's changed how we learn how we communicate how we function and all of those aspects are really what's changing us to where we need to figure out how to respond to that i find what's interesting too though is that companies like zappos where they now have a holacracy and they're sort of dismantling the structure of, of organizations and whether or not that is replicable at most major organizations is debatable but if you look within teams you're finding much more of a project orientation in a lot of organizations. And you're finding much more of a, a flattening of those groups where each of the roles get played in a much more project-like setting, even within a larger hierarchy in a company. Josh or Eric, thoughts
3: yeah, on what you know, I, I, I want to say, listen, I've been to Zappos and I've met those guys. They're great. I don't think that's for everybody myself. I, I think most people actually kind of like to know their job and what they're being expected Mm -hmm. to do. (laughs)
4: And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's people
3: that like this totally unstructured kind of free environment, which is that that happens a little bit more like that. Um, But I actually think clarity is, is very valuable. And it gets back to what we talked about in the very beginning of the call, which is leadership. I think, you know, every company seems to have this continuous challenge of taking people and moving them into leadership roles and teaching them what it means to be a leader. And it really does matter if you know to set the right values of what do we expect leaders to do are you gonna direct people are you gonna coach people are you gonna help them focus are you gonna give them hard goals and make sure they hit them and then fire them if they don't hit them those are the cultural things that you get to decide at an executive level that comes down through leadership and then impacts people's daily lives I'm interested to see if this holacracy thing goes anywhere. I think it's going to die myself. I, I, don't, I don't think it's going to take off, but it's an interesting it, conversation. Go
2: ahead, Eric. Go ahead. Uh, I, I think what we see from some of our research is what people really are looking for is transparency, and we saw this across really all three generations is, you know, do people know what's expected of them? Do people know how they fit within the larger piece of the organization? Uh, and a lot of this is blacking and tackling stuff. This is not stuff that has been, you know, uh, that just all of a sudden become important issues. These have been important issues for a number of years. But I think as you know the trend for more information to be available people want to see how they fit within this larger piece of the organization whether they you know have uh, to what extent they have a say in it to what extent i mean there are lots of opportunities now that organizations are starting to tap into where they're actually able to to better understand the engagement, the sentiment of their organizations, be able to take the pulse of what's going on to be able to get employee feedback into the mix. So I think employees are looking for that kind of transparency and that kind of dialogue within organizations, but mostly they're looking for guidance, as Josh has said, about what's my expectation, what am I being asked to do, and how does it fit into the larger puzzle? Mm
4: -hmm. And and what I would add is, and how do I do it? So if you look at all of those scenarios, I completely agree that people would like clarity. I think one of the challenges is we look at people changing roles so rapidly. We have ill-equipped managers and leaders because they haven't done it before, whereas we've had historically people who've been in those roles, and we have lots of people taking on jobs where they don't have the skill set. And we've had a situation where organizations haven't invested a lot in their people. They haven't invested a lot in learning. And so there's an opportunity really and a, a gap, frankly, a void that needs to be filled to equip those managers to turn them into leaders or at a minimum into managers. And as people come in to give them some knowledge, learning capabilities, all of those skills in order to execute well, because we're hiring people now with the aptitude to do work versus necessarily the experience of having done it for five, seven, ten years. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Carrie? I'm looking at your notes from before the show, and I find, find something very interesting along our topic of demographics. Let me read this, and why don't you go with it. You say, with such a dramatic shift in demographics facing organizations today, here's the key. The leadership gap will be challenged with the continually increasing departure of current leaders in the next five to ten years. Talk to me,
4: Carrie. It's really continuing on from what I was saying a moment ago that we have such, yeah. While, yes, the larger part of the workforce is millennials, the larger part of the workforce making decisions is still boomers. And so when mm-hmm. you look at organizations and how they're shaping their culture and changing their culture, the shift that's going to occur fairly dramatically is as the millennials become not only individual contributors, but managers and leaders more and more, we're going to see an opportunity to find out what have we been doing that really was unnecessary. So I was speaking with Dan Morales yesterday, the CIO of eBay, and he was talking about his children and they needed some help on their computer and getting their computer working. And he looked at me and said, Microsoft Office isn't on your computer. What happened to it? And they said, oh, dad, that's for old people. We just put it on Google. And so that he, he couldn't, you know, you think of all of us and how much we do at work. Imagining doing a lot of our, quote, work without using some of the basic tools is a complete shift in a work behavior and a work pattern. So when you look at the, the ways that we are choosing to work now and the opportunities we have, it's going to be really interesting, I think, to find what millennials will bring in terms of saying, you know what, that was unnecessary. We can just stop doing that. And the things that we will find, we had no idea could really be done so differently because we've just been doing what we're familiar with. Eric Lesser, thoughts?
2: You know, it's interesting that we talk about, uh, you know, the boomers sort of exiting the workforce because this is in a topic that we've been, you know, sort of wrestling with for the last ten years and due to a variety of economic circumstance, uh, we haven't seen leaders sort of exiting so quickly. Uh, but I think there's a real opportunity, I think, for people to be thinking about, you know, in this whole idea of simplicity, is also how do you manage the the, the complexity of just not only the multi generations in the workforce, but still the the globalization, the internationalization of the workforce, and, and really more of the network view of the workforce. That you know companies are paying less and less attention to hierarchy, and more about this idea of network development. And so how do you give people the right tools and capabilities to not only understand the composition of their networks, but also how you, you know, can influence network development, how you can make the right connections to get you to point A to point B within an organization or even beyond your organizational boundaries in order to get your work done more effectively?
1: Josh? Well, the, yeah, the, the
3: leadership challenge, as I said, I think really is there, and, and there is a generational shift. And, you know, it always sort of irks me when I go to these meetings, and I go to HR meetings, and I go to different meetings with business leaders, and everybody's in their 50s. And I'm like, what is, <laughs> why are there no people in their 20s and 30s in these meetings? You know, where are they? Are they out there, you know, getting coffee for you guys? Um Uh-oh. We have to get we have to take young people and accelerate them into develop into leadership roles and it, it happens in Silicon Valley, but not in a lot of other companies, much much more quickly. you learn leadership by doing it um, and observing other people do it and given the the rapid change in the number of people that are going to retire, I think companies just have to accelerate it i mean I have one piece of data in this study we just did only thirteen percent of the companies that responded st- stated that they had an active um, High-powered or, or effective program for building leadership among millennials, and that to me is kind of a disgrace. I mean, this is the future of the workforce. If you're not actively, you know, teaching and, and helping younger people take on leadership roles, whether they be functional leaders or you know, people leaders, then you know, you're going to get caught in this gap. And so, I think it's absolutely time.
1: <laughs> it's time, Carrie, You started this thread. What are your thoughts? You want to close this one out?
4: Absolutely, and, and, and Josh's point is similar to our research. When we looked at the missing goals, the missing aspects in the workforce around engagement and leadership and technology and talent, similar statistics. Only 34% of leaders really think that they're making good progress at building adequate leadership. And the, the opportunity is so great, and I, I think we've had the, the luxury of having a large population who have that experience, who've learned management and leadership by doing. And we need to really give the opportunity to a new generation of leaders and managers of whatever age to step into their shoes.
1: Okay. Um, Josh Burson, I'm looking at your notes. There's something here you put in, in, uh, and you capitalized this term. I don't know if we've covered this during the the talk, but I'd like you to address it. You say the overwhelmed employee is now a problem in two-thirds of all organizations, and you capped overwhelmed employee. Is this a category now?
3: (laughs) A year ago, when we did the human capital trends research, we we had a theme. One of the ten themes was the overwhelmed employee, and everywhere I went, people wanted to talk about it. And and since then, you know, Arianna Huffington's written a book, and geez, there's there must be a hundred books on mindfulness and focus. So I think we've all been a, been made aware of the damaging effect of technology. But the technology companies are not slowing down. Now we've got watches that are on all the time that are telling us Mm -hmm. what's going on and GPS devices. And there's a flurry of really cool hot startups that are building real-time feedback tools that will allow employees to constantly feed back to their employers, you know, what they do and don't like about work. Um, There's this new cognitive technology computing technology like the IBM Watson stuff, but it's even getting more, you know, more compartmentized. Uh, companies have, um, I went to a company the other day that has a heat detector in their retail stores to determine how many employees are in, in each aisle so they can determine when to open up another checkout counter. So this technology is just like everywhere. And um, I think we just have to teach ourselves, and maybe this is something that will come in school. I don't know where people are going to learn it how to shut it off.
2: <laughs> good good luck with that. Eric? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, as, as we were preparing for the show, I did a, a quick uh, and dirty Google search uh, using the technology, unfortunately, um, and, and, t- and entered the word life hack in there because you mm-hmm. see this in all of these different articles. And the when I, I Googled the, the search term life hack, it returned approximately 14 million references. Um, <laughs> (laughs) So everybody is looking for, you know, the next workaround, the easy way to do it, you know, finding, you know, what's the hidden instruction, you know, uh, to to find this on. because there's no more instruction manuals anymore. There's, you know, people, uh, it's all about, uh, you know, experience and doing. Uh, So on one hand, there's a lot of, it's an interesting paradox, because on one hand, there are um ways of doing things you know if you think about just uh, all of the google videos on everything how you do from you know do it yourself home repair all the way to you know helping your kids with your homework in some ways it's a lot easier to get things done but that the sheer volume of what has to get done is making people just, it creates very difficult situations for people. And so when Josh talks about, uh, you know, this whole idea of cognitive computing, one of the directions that cognitive computing is really headed is helping people sort through and be an advisor to the myriad of choices that they need to make. Whether it's around financial planning, whether it's around career decisions, uh, whether it's just trying to take all of the data around a specific area and just trying to make heads or tails out of it. This is where I think some of, you know, where some of the next generation technology is going to be headed. It's not going to be about, you know, just simply gathering all of the stuff that's around in the world, but actually helping people make sense of what's going on in the world. Eric,
1: guess what? It's time for us to segue into the final segment of the show, which is the Crystal Ball Predictions round. I can give you, let's see, we got five minutes till closing. I'm going to give you 90 seconds. I know you're prepared for this. So what if we fast forward to this conversation and met again in 2020 or whatever time you see in the Crystal Ball, Eric, what would be different about this topic? What will change in that time frame? Go ahead. 90 seconds. Predictions. Eric Lesser. Go.
2: Well, I think what you're going to see as much as we were talking about before is this notion of advisory services and technology being able to advise people and help them sift through all of the choices that they are now bombarded with on a day-to-day basis. So whether it's about how they're going to manage their personal life, their financial life, their work life, there are going to be more and more sophisticated capabilities that are going to help them provide input and really augment rather than replace uh, the decisions that they're going to have to make. We don't think that these things are just going to, uh, you know, automatically people are going to be removed out of the loop, but I think more and more they're going to have the opportunity to have technology help them sift through and make better decisions and better choices in ways that are easier for them to understand and make.
1: Thank you very much. And by the way, there's a website called 1000lifehacks.com, 1000, with all kinds of funky pictures and infographics. What can I tell you? Uh, Josh Burson, 90 seconds, predictions, go.
3: I think we're going to be sitting on this call in 10 or 20 years. I don't know. Almost, hopefully, we'll all be kicking around. And we're going to be having the exact same conversation about technology that we're having today. Please, Josh,
1: please.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We'll be saying, oh, there's too much technology. It's too new. We don't understand what it's going to do. It's going to put us out of jobs. I mean, I, I, I heard this exact theme a long time ago when the first PC came out in 1981. And here we are having it again. So I think technology is going to march ahead at an accelerating rate. It's going to continuously transform what we do. We have to get comfortable with that. And the one thing I would add that is really important is that you you can't really live without learning the tools anymore. You can't pretend like I don't understand how to use the Internet. I don't know how to use my phone. You, you, will, you will fall behind, at least in the business world. Um, and so we I've always found that the people that took the time to learn the tools well outperformed those that did not. And that is sometimes a discipline that people don't have, but um, I think we just have to accept it. And I do think technology is going to be, I think cognitive computing is going to be here, but we will not even know it. It's like we have cognitive computing on our phones. It's watching where we're going and it's making recommendations of where to turn on the car and and it'll be there, but it won't be as scary as it seems because it'll just be natural. So I'm 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 comfortable with that. I You know, I grew up in technology. I worked for IBM in early, early in my career and live in the Silicon Valley. And I think if we just think about it that way, maybe it won't be quite as as frightening, you know, as,
4: as it may seem to some people.
1: Thank you, Josh. I saved 45 seconds for Carrie. Carrie, I can give you one minute. Go ahead. Predictions.
4: I think to build on Josh's point, I think really learning is going to be the key. And I think that self-sufficiency is going to be the other aspect of that. So... I think you'll continue to see engagement and metrics and incentives and organizations that really give the right knowledge and optics and information and analytics to individuals in order to become very self-sufficient. I think what's interesting is it's going to become the technology is much more of the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. There's a lot of magic, but out front it's really simple for the rest of us. And so as technology becomes continually able to renew and refresh and restore what we might have had in our organizations into something that is more simple and elegant. I think we'll continue to have an individual and a collective experience that's a simpler, more pleasant one, that's a, a better orientation for all of us to be successful, but that that's going to take some investment on our part, not only from a technological perspective, but in our people. I think we've allowed ourselves to sit fairly status quo, and we're going to continue to need to put those gifts, if you will, those opportunities in the hands of our employees, to do their jobs. Thank
1: you, Carrie Brown. Thank you so much to my wonderful panel. You just played very well in the sandbox together. Eric Lesser from the IBM Institute of Business Value. Thank you, Eric. Delightful to meet you. Josh Burson, always good to speak with you at Burson by Deloitte. And thanks for tweeting. He could walk and tweet and talk and and have his lunch at the same time. He's an amazing man, and I do appreciate it. And Carrie Brown at SAP, always glad to talk to you. Shout-out to our series sponsors, Becky Weber and Lindsay Nelson at SAP, and to our wonderful engineer, Brad, and the Business Channel team. And I'll be back in another hour, one hour from now, with a new edition of Business Innovation with Game Changers, a good conversation there. So here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a Game Changer today. Bonnie D. Graham signed. Signing off. Talk to you soon. Bye bye.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.